At KPMG, our people make the difference. It's not just something we say, it's what we do. Combining the power of people and technology, we uncover brighter insights, innovate bolder solutions, and create better data-driven outcomes. KPMG, make the difference. I'm Ali Velshi, in for Alex Wagner. Ron DeSantis described it as a crisis and a war. Donald Trump called it an invasion. With less than two weeks left until the Iowa caucuses today, Trump and DeSantis published dueling op-eds in the Des Moines Register. Both cast immigration as the most pressing problem facing our country. Both candidates promised that they and they alone can fix it. Now, what both Trump and DeSantis are advancing in these op-eds are neither actual fixes to our country's border issues, nor are they actual immigration policy. But they are the sort of plans you can tell people you have, and they are articulating them to the public. They want to let fewer brown people in. They want immigration to be the most painful process possible. They want to set new records in uh, deportation. Again, none of that really addresses any of the root causes of migration or the actual problems with our immigration system, which are real. But it is a plan, and it is a plan around which Republicans are largely unified. This is video from last Friday of migrants, including children and adults carrying children, attempting to cross a river at the southern border in Eagle Pass, Texas. The Texas governor, Greg Abbott, tweeted this video out today. Not out of sympathy for the plight of these migrants that you're looking at on your screen and their harrowing journey, but to celebrate the razor wire that his government put up to make their journey more difficult. Governor Abbott is currently facing off with the Biden administration in court about whether it was illegal for Abbott to put the razor wire up in the first place. But legal or illegal, and it probably is illegal, the cruelty is the point. And again, this is not just Abbott. This is not just DeSantis. This is not just Trump. Today, the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, led a delegation of 60 of his fellow Republican congresspeople to Eagle Pass, Texas, the same spot on the border that the governor was tweeting about. Members of that delegation threatened to shut down the entire federal government if their demands on border policy are not met. Shut the border down or shut the government down. We are all committed to that. Now, what would shutting the border down actually mean? Again, none of what Republicans are proposing is anywhere near an actual tangible solution, but they are putting forward a unified vision something that has been sorely lacking from Democrats. And they are traveling from D.C. to Texas for photo ops like this one to push that vision. While at the same time, Republican governors are continuing to send buses and planes of migrants from the southern border to northern states like New York and Illinois without warning, using migrants as pawns in a publicity stunt to stick it to the blue states. Republicans are doing everything they can to telegraph that they are, quote unquote, tough on immigration. Just last month, Texas passed a new law that would allow state police to usurp the role of federal border patrol and arrest people suspected of illegally crossing the southern border. The new law would allow local judges to then deport those people. Today, the Biden administration sued Texas to put that new law on hold. For reasons we will discuss in a moment, Texas's new law is probably unconstitutional. Republicans in the House also announced today that they will begin uh, a, a week from today. They will begin impeachment proceedings against the Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas for his handling of the border. What exactly Secretary Mayorkas has done that warrants impeachment? I, I don't know. I honestly couldn't tell you, probably nor can anyone you know. I doubt anyone could actually tell you a reason for it. But Republicans are pushing ahead with impeachment proceedings anyway. 
It's not a lot of substance in any of the proposals put forward by Republicans to fix our country's immigration system. But there is a vision. It's cruel. It's awful. It won't fix a thing, but it is a plan. So what's the Biden administration's plan? Well, as far as running the country properly, it's been pretty comprehensive and effective. Wages are up. Inflation is under control. The stock market is hitting records. Consumers are feeling more confident. Manufacturing is coming back. And God forbid, if we have another pandemic, our supply chains are stronger. America has rallied all of NATO and 20 more countries to fend off Russian expansionism in Ukraine. Our success there is probably keeping the Chinese from invading Taiwan and the North Koreans from blowing stuff up. The Biden administration has a lot to brag about as we head into 2024, but we have seen time and time again that those issues are not registering with voters. Biden just isn't getting credit for them. For the most part, Biden's campaign so far has been about what he said he was running for in 2020, a battle for the soul of the nation. And don't get me wrong, protecting democracy and preventing our nation from slipping into autocracy is actually more important than inflation or the climate or abortion or immigration, because without democracy, you cannot debate or fight for any of those things. But Republicans are bringing the issue of immigration front and center for 2024. So what is the Democratic Party's vision here? What is the plan? Joining us now are the former 2020 presidential candidate and former secretary of housing and urban development and former mayor of San Antonio, Julian Castro, and the Pulitzer Prize winning staff writer at The Atlantic, Caitlin Dickerson, an immigration expert. Thank you both for being with us. I really appreciate it. Uh, Secretary Castro, let me start with you, because when you ran for president in 2020, you did make this central. You you actually it's the one thing you have in common with Republicans. You said this is really an important issue to us as Americans. And you had sort of uh, you had plans about how you would deal with both the border and the concept of immigration, which are different things. Uh, in fact, you even thought about what to do about the countries from which many of these migrants were coming from and how to help them, uh, you know, move forward. None of that has materialized into real policy for Democrats. Unfortunately, Ali, it seems that too oftentimes Democrats are afraid to talk about this issue. Uh, And because of that, they're often very defensive on it. They try to avoid it. Uh, They may make policy policy pronouncements or put forward legislation, but don't really spend any time talking about the details of that or putting forward an overall vision that is based on the values that we share as, as Americans, that this is a country of immigrants that says that we can manage migration effectively and also humanely, that we can both deal with the flow of people today and also make sure that we address the root causes of immigration so that people can find safety and opportunity at home so they don't have to seek it in the United States. Uh, In that vacuum that exists, Republicans fill it with boogeyman politics, with fear-mongering, with all of the kind of dog-and-pony show politics that we saw Speaker Johnson engage it at the border today, they do it over and over and over. And Democrats need to flip into a mode of going on offense instead of being so defensive, or else the public is going to buy what Republicans are Mm -hmm. selling. Caitlin, you have spilled so much ink on this. You understand the distinctions between immigration policy, border flow and management, which is its own thing, and the root causes their own thing, why people are coming to this country. They are separate issues. If Republicans, if Democrats really wanted to lean into a solution to this, all they need to do is read your stuff. What what can they do to own this issue as opposed to, you know, constantly being on the defensive about it? 
Well, thank you, Allie. What I hear from voters is is this same question that you are echoing very loudly right now. You know, what we hear from elected officials on the Democratic side, including the president, is just these no's. No, we shouldn't get rid of asylum. No, we shouldn't close the border. No, we shouldn't enact mass deportations. And then the question is, well, what should we actually do instead? I think that what almost all Americans agree on is that they want a system that works. And what most Americans agree on is that they want a system that is humane. Mm -hmm. And I think starting from a place where you have a functioning system, where you address the immigration court backlogs, where you have a place for people to go to apply to get a legal pathway into the United States if they've gone through vetting processes, I mean, that seems to be the baseline. And I agree that Democrats have been too scared to put forth any ideas as to how to go about doing this. I mean, there are a lot of resources being spent on border security and a lot of resources being set on immigration, spent on immigration. And and there are people who know how to reorganize them to make this system work. It's just a matter of coming out of that defensive crouch that Democrats are in currently and actually putting forth a position, a plan. Secretary Castro, you know, you talked about uh, creating a a pathway to citizenship for people who come into this country. We have a 3.7 percent unemployment rate. Wages have done nothing but go up for the last few years. So this this strange argument that immigrants make wages go uh, down, it's been disproved several times. But even I remember talking to John Huntsman when he was governor of Ohio many, many years ago. He was one of a number of Western governors who wanted uh, work permits and and ways to get uh, migrant workers into America for agricultural work. We've since realized we need people for manufacturing work, for, for construction work. The need for immigrants is acute in this country. It, it doesn't seem so hard to figure out what's the system by which we will manage that, determine who it is we'd like to let into the country, determine how the pace by which we, we let them in and fix the problems that Caitlin were talking, because they're just problems. They're they're logistical problems more than they are anything else. Yeah, I mean, we we're sitting on a three and a half percent unemployment rate right now in the United States, and there are a lot of uh, industries that already rely on uh, these immigrants for labor um, and jobs that uh, that unfortunately Americans don't want to do. And that's the reality, whether people like it or not, that is the reality out there. And this area of the need for this immigrant labor and our economy, I think that's an intersection where you may see some progress in the years to come. Unfortunately, in the last few years, that business end of the Republican Party has not had a strong voice when it comes to uh, trying to muster support for these kinds of measures, compromises on immigration reform. Um, In fact, you don't hear that argument very often anymore, but it is a reality. We know it here in Texas. We know it in other border states and throughout the country and places like Utah that you mentioned. My hope is that uh, as Congress continues to pursue potential legislation, the economic needs of the country as it involves these immigrants will be under consideration. Caitlin, one of the things you and I have talked about for a long time is that this has been a decades-long failure by both parties. This could have been fixed a long time ago. But this, this cruelty was not a hallmark of the Republican Party. In fact, former President Bush, uh, Jeb Bush of Florida, they, they all have views about immigration and, and 
uh, and immigration policy that are much more in line with mainstream views. The cruelty is not part of the way they see things. They do see things, as as uh, as the secretary says, from a sort of an economic uh, perspective, that we, we need these people in our country. We don't give birth to enough people to supply our workforce on an ongoing basis. What's the shift in the Republican Party, and why has that worked so well? Where Where is this from? I know that some of it was uh, Sheriff Arpaio and some of it was Donald Trump coming down the stairs at Trump Tower when he announced his candidacy. But when did that shift happen? Well, I would say the shift has actually not just occurred within Republicans. I think the entire country really has moved to the right on immigration. I think that starts with Donald Trump's rhetoric running in 2016. And I think that it continues today because, as you've said, Republicans have so well harnessed this message. And when you combine very scary rhetoric with a feeling of scarcity, which is always an issue to some degree in this country, whether we're talking about, you know, moments when unemployment is higher, unlike now, or when you're talking about being in a pandemic, you know, we've got a lot of social issues in this country, a lot of people who feel like they need help. And so when you have a scapegoat put in front of you, you know, pointing the finger of blame, it's a very powerful message and it's a convincing one. You know, Joe Arpaio was sort of famously unpopular. Mm -hmm. He, He was an elected official. He had support, but not somebody who could have run for president and won. And now the entire Republican slate of candidates Mm -hmm. hoping to run against President Biden are repeating these messages of Donald Trump. It's important to point out, though, you know, you asked me earlier what works, what should be on the table for consideration, deterrence and in particular policies that are really, really harsh and cruel, you know, taking people's children away from their parents, subjecting them to awful conditions in detention centers for months at a time. These deterrent measures do not work. Yes, they're just cruel and they don't solve the problem. Right, exactly. Secretary, when you and I met, you were the mayor of San Antonio. Um, The mayors in this country are are in an interesting situation. There are Democratic mayors of cities that either consider themselves officially sanctuary cities or or don't. But they're they generally have positive views on immigration who are now being feeling the squeeze because of these buses and these airplanes that are showing up in in cities around the country. These are cities and governors now who are pressuring the federal government to say, you got to solve this problem because now these uh, migrants are in our our towns and our states. Again, it's a it's a ruse, but it's working. It's 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 Republican governors like DeSantis and Abbott causing uh, northeastern mayors and governors, Democrats to put the squeeze on the federal government. Yeah, I mean, it's using these migrants as political uh, pawns. Uh, It's cruel, but it's not dumb, pure politics. If we're just analyzing the politics of it and it has had the desired effect of Um, making these mayors pressure the Biden administration to come up with resources. Here's the thing, Allie. The Biden administration has pushed for more resources for whether it's New York or Chicago or other places, and also for some fixes, like allowing these migrants to be able to to get work permits more quickly so that they can provide for themselves while they await an answer on their asylum claim. But Republicans won't go along with that. They at every juncture, they actually block potential solutions and then they scream about how broken the system is. That is the, the tragedy. That is the folly here. And that's the hypocrisy of this Republican Party. Uh, I'm going to ask our viewers if they haven't done so to 
look up everything Caitlin Dickerson's written. Uh, in fact, recently you've had a, a remarkable piece that uh, earned you a Pulitzer Prize. And I think it's just important for people to understand this is not a solution that doesn't have answers. It's not an unsolvable problem. Uh, Secretary Castro, good to see you as always. Thank you again. Uh, you have made this a major issue when you were running for president. Uh, you were two of the best people to talk to about this important issue. The former HUD secretary and presidential candidate, Julian Castro, Pulitzer Prize winning staff writer at The Atlantic, Caitlin Dickerson. We appreciate your time this evening. All right, coming up, we'll talk to Biden's deputy campaign manager about the president's plans to use January 6th uh, as an anniversary to draw a contrast with Donald Trump. But first, the former president asks the Supreme Court to help him out on the Colorado primary ballot. He says, let the people decide. We'll get the legal analysis on that next. At KPMG, we make the difference. It's not just something we say. It's what we do. Our professionals believe in the value of collaboration and the power of technology. We work closely with clients to uncover insights that illuminate opportunity, develop bold solutions that innovate industries, and create better outcomes driven by data. Brighter insights, bolder solutions, better outcomes. It's how our people make the difference, driving growth and value for our clients. KPMG, make the difference. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Tonight, Donald Trump's lawyers are asking the United States Supreme Court to reverse the Colorado Supreme Court's decision to remove him from that state's ballot. In December, the state Supreme Court ruled that Donald Trump should be removed from Colorado's primary ballot because of his involvement in the January 6th violence, violence that the Colorado court called an insurrection. The Colorado Supreme Court was the first to issue such a landmark ruling, citing a post-Civil War constitutional amendment that prohibits insurrectionists from holding office. The court said that Trump had engaged in an insurrection and consequently is disqualified from holding the office of the president. Now, just a few hours ago, Trump's lawyers asked the United States Supreme Court to weigh in on this, as expected. His lawyers say the Colorado Supreme Court got it wrong. They write, quote, it was not insurrection and President Trump was in no way engaged in insurrection. They say the question of Trump's eligibility is reserved for Congress not the state courts to decide. They want the United States Supreme Court to, quote, return the right to vote for their candidate of choice to the voters. The Colorado's high court is not the only one grappling with this question. Last week, Maine's secretary of state barred Trump from that state's primary ballot. And Trump's candidacy is being challenged in 17 other states. The Supreme Court 6-3 conservative majority is expected to take up the question of whether Trump is constitutionally eligible to run for president and its decision could reshape the race. Joining me now is Barbara McQuaid, former United States attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan and an MSNBC legal analyst and author of a new book coming out next month titled Attack from Within, How Disinformation is Sabotaging America. Cannot wait to get my hands on that. Barbara, thank you for being here. Uh, Donald Trump's lawyers are latching on to something that has been popularized in the media recently, and that is notwithstanding 
the Constitution, uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which disqualifies someone who has taken an oath uh, from running for office, the people should decide. Um, and that's an interesting question, because there are many, like Judge Ludig, like Jamie Raskin, constitutional experts who say that's not an either or thing when it comes to something that's in the Constitution. You can say that the court got the interpretation wrong, but if the Constitution says X, you can't just decide, we'll, we'll just let the people decide. Yeah, this is an argument, I think, that has some appeal at a gut level. I mean, we think about our democracy as everybody gets to cast a vote and choose who they want for president. But the Constitution itself is created by the will of the people. Even the 14th Amendment had to be approved by two thirds of Congress and then three quarters of the states. And so we created through the democratic process the qualifications for being president. There's an age limit. There's a term limit. There's a citizenship limit. And there is also a limit that you not be an insurrectionist. And so uh, these are hard questions. The court is going to have to look at this and decide how to decide this question. But the idea that we just disregard the 14th Amendment and say put it to the people, I think, is the weakest argument in Donald Trump's new petition. So the slightly less weak argument, the one that is actually one that a court can consider, is whether January 6th was an insurrection and whether or not Donald Trump took part in it. The Colorado Supreme Court didn't sort of didn't take the easy way out of this thing. They really, really examined it. They looked at various ways in which the term rebellion um, in the Constitution could have been interpreted and giving care and comfort to those who participated and could be interpreted. And they they deliberated. They came out with a, uh, a decision that they said Donald Trump did participate in an insurrection. It's interesting because a lot of the Republican argument is that there's been no adjudication of that matter. Yeah, I think this is the weakest part of Donald Trump's new petition with, uh, you know, in kind of a single paragraph, he says, uh, you know, an insurrection means waging war against the United States like the Civil War. And since this was instead a peaceful protest that got out of hand, that's something completely different. End of story. I, I don't think it's as simple as that. I think you have to look at the language. And of course, the, the Supreme Court in its current uh, makeup is very big on original textualism. And so what was the common public understanding at the time of the 14th Amendment? And there is certainly some debate at that time that said, we want to make sure this doesn't apply just to our current situation with the Civil War, but all insurrections that may come in the future. So it's a hard question, but I don't think Donald Trump's brief tackles it uh, with the seriousness it deserves. And let's just put some meat on those bones. When this amendment was uh, written and ratified after the Civil War, there was a pretty clear idea of what rebellion looked like because it had been the Civil War. Is Donald Trump's team leaning into the fact that you can't compare January 6th to the Civil War or, or he didn't raise an army? I've heard all of these sorts of uh, arguments. Yes. I mean, they say this was not an insurrection. An insurrection only stands if you are waging war against the United States. And even if it was an insurrection, Donald Trump did not engage in it, which is the word in the 14th Amendment, because all he did is give a speech, and that is protected by the First Amendment. So some of those same arguments that we have heard before. Now, one of the arguments I have heard is that due process requires that he be found beyond a reasonable doubt to have engaged in insurrection. Uh And that certainly isn't the case. And even he doesn't make that argument. Uh, I think that in most civil matters, preponderance of the evidence is the standard that can be used, and hearsay evidence can be used. And so looking as the Colorado a Supreme Court did to the January 6th House Committee hearings seems to me perfectly appropriate for determining whether there was or was not an insurrection.
There was a sense amongst those who had been proponents of uh, of the 14th Amendment, uh, uh, Section 3, that the Colorado case, there are 17 states that, that have a view on whether or not Donald Trump should be uh, disqualified from running, that the Colorado case was the strongest. How do you evaluate that? Are, 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 are they not there? I've heard people ask me, aren't they all equal? Isn't the same Constitution ap- ap- applicable in all states? Yes, it, it is. But each of these states is looking at it. It's sort of a different procedural point. I think people think, and I agree, that the Colorado case is the strongest because they actually had a trial. They brought in witnesses. They had some of the police officers who were there at the Capitol on January 6th testify, and they had expert witnesses testify. In some of these other states, they have either relied solely on the record of the House committee or have decided this on the basis of some procedural issue. So this one seems to be the one that is the appropriate uh, vehicle for the court to look at this question. And I do agree with one thing in Donald Trump's brief, that is, this is a significant public question that requires prompt disposition by the Supreme Court. Uh, Trump's uh, lawyer, uh, Alina Haba, said on Fox News today, said something interesting. She said Trump is deeply concerned that uh, the, the Supreme Court justices, particularly the ones he appointed, may shy away from being pro-Trump because they're trying so hard to look neutral. Now, I imagine that's not a legal argument, but there's some messaging that's intended to get to these Supreme Court justices to say, don't overdo it. Don't bend over backwards to not look like you're on my side. I I don't know how a lawyer with your experience evaluates a statement like that. (laughs) Yeah, I I think they're they're working the refs. Um, But I don't think that works. You know, certainly this court has a very conservative worldview. I don't know that they're in the bag for Trump. Um, But I do think it may be... um, easier for them to find some off-ramp to avoid deciding the question. And Donald Trump's brief provides them with a number of off-ramps. For example, finding that the office of the presidency is not covered by the 14th Amendment. Or the other one they raise, which is new to me, I hadn't heard before, which is that the 14th Amendment does not talk about whether someone can run for president only whether they can hold the office for president. Mm -hmm. And so all of this is premature. He ought to be able to run, even get elected. And then it's up to Congress to decide whether he gets seated in January of 2025. Note to self, if you ever get invited to a constitutional uh, convention, that words matter. Uh, Barbara, great to see you. Looking forward to the book. Thank you, as always. Barbara McQuaid. Uh, We've got lots more ahead tonight, including Joe Biden's election year message reset. Quentin Fultz, principal deputy campaign manager for Biden 2024, joins me later in the hour to discuss. But first, new developments are shedding light on who was behind the deadly explosion in Lebanon this week that killed a top Hamas official suspected of being directly involved in the October 7th terrorist attacks. More on that after the break. At KPMG, our people make the difference. It's not just something we say, it's what we do. Combining the power of people and technology, we uncover brighter insights, innovate bolder solutions, and create better data-driven outcomes. KPMG, make the difference. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Thank you. 
We've got some important developments related to the ongoing war between Israel and Hamas and the broader region. There are images from an explosion, explosion this week in a suburb of Beirut, Lebanon's capital, that killed at least seven members of Hamas, including Saleh al-Aruri, the commander of Hamas's military wing in the West Bank and the deputy chairman of the group's political bureau. He is suspected of being directly involved in the October 7th terrorist attack against Israel that killed more than 1,200 people. NBC News is reporting tonight that Israel did not notify the United States in advance of the strike, but did inform Washington as it was underway. That's according to two U.S. officials, a U.S. defense official, and a person briefed on the operation. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has suggested in the past that Aruri was a potential target. Israel's military has vowed to hunt down all Hamas leaders involved in the October 7th attack. As of now, Israel has not claimed responsibility for Monday's assassinations, but today... Israel's Mossad spy chief, David Barnea, said that he was committed to, quote, settling the score with Hamas, adding, quote, let every Arab mother know that if her son took part directly or indirectly in the October 7th massacre, his blood is forfeit, end quote. The strike on al-Aruri marks the first assassination of a top Hamas official outside of the West Bank in Gaza in recent years. And it comes at a time when officials across the region and here in the United States, are worried about the war in Gaza igniting a wider regional conflict. Al-Aruri was a key figure who helped repair Hamas's relationship with Iran. His death, according to experts, could now be perceived as a warning to Tehran, which has armed and financed Hamas over the years. Iran's leaders have not made public comments about al-Aruri's death, but Iran's Islamist proxies in the Middle East, including Hezbollah in Lebanon, have already vowed to retaliate. Hezbollah chief Hassan Nasrallah said that, quote, this crime will not go unpunished. Hezbollah's leaders also claim today that nine of its fighters have been killed in clashes with Israeli forces in the past 24 hours. That raises the total number to 148 Hezbollah fighters since the October 7th attack. Meanwhile, 1,600 miles east of Beirut, a separate incident today shocked a region that's already on edge. In the central Iranian city of Kerman, two explosions minutes apart killed nearly 100 people who were attending a memorial for Qasem Soleimani. He is a senior Iranian, was a senior Iranian general assassinated in 2020 by a U.S. drone strike. The first of the two explosions hit around 3 p.m. local time near Soleimani's tomb in the Kerman Martyrs Cemetery. Fifteen minutes later, a second explosion went off about 2,000 feet away. Iranian TV footage showed people running, bodies being transported from the scene, and ambulances leaving through large crowds. The Iranian government said it was a terrorist attack. It's unclear whether the blasts in Iran have anything to do with the Israel-Hamas war, but the White House today denied any involvement in them. They also said they do not believe Israel was behind it. U.S. officials and experts consulted by NBC think the attack could be the work of ISIS, given the militants' long-running conflict with Tehran and the relatively unsophisticated but lethal way in which the blasts were carried out. All right, still ahead tonight, President Biden is statistically deadlocked with Donald Trump in the polls, but his campaign is out with a plan to help their guy pull ahead. The question is, will it work? I'll talk with Biden's principal deputy campaign manager about that next. August of 2017, we saw Klansmen and white supremacists and neo-Nazis come out in the open. And that's when we heard the words of the President of the United States that stunned the world and shocked the conscience of this nation. 
He said there were, quote, some very fine people on both sides. Very fine people on both sides? If we give Donald Trump eight years in the White House, he will forever and fundamentally alter the character of this nation. That was how Joe Biden launched his campaign for president four years ago, citing the 2017 white supremacist riot in Charlottesville, Virginia. Now Joe Biden is poised to face off against Donald Trump a second time, and he's returning to similar themes. On Friday, President Biden will mark the third anniversary of the January 6th attack with a speech at Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. Then on Monday, Biden's going to visit Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, where nine churchgoers were killed by a white supremacist in 2015. It's part of what The Washington Post reports is Biden's new election year push to try and center his campaign on a central message that American democracy would not survive another Trump presidency. The message is stark, but the stark message has effectively been the central case against Donald Trump for the last four years. And yet polls continue to show Biden and Trump in a dead heat. Those who do not think that this election is a battle for the soul of America or for the future of democracy appear to be unmoved by those arguments. And if those voters remain unmoved, then the future of democracy and this nation itself may be at risk. Joining us now is Quentin Folks, principal deputy campaign manager for Joe Biden's 2024 re-election campaign. Quentin, it is good to see you. Thank you for being here tonight. I do not envy you and your team and the job you have to do, because that's a hell of a lift. If you cannot look at the last four years or three, three plus years of what Donald Trump's been up to and the four years before that and worry about the existential nature of our democracy, I don't know what it is you plan to tell people to convince them otherwise. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Look, it, it is a lift, but one thing I can assure you is that our team is well prepared uh, to do it. Uh, you know, we have to make the case. Donald Trump does continue to pose an existential threat to our democracy. Uh, he did four years ago, as you all just heard President Biden lay out. Um, and that's exactly why he was defeated. Uh, Donald Trump is telling us every single day uh, the type of person, the type of president that he would be if he was able to gain control of the White House again. Uh, yep. And that's being a dictator. Um, and so plain and simple and simple, uh, we have to make this case to the American people. Yeah, it's, it's not even obscure, right? He says it. He just says it. He says he says the words. He says words Hitler used. He says words that uh, that that uh, Mussolini used. And yet the message about Trump as a threat to the soul of the nation, which worked in 2020, arguably that threat's worse because now his team is smarter. Now he says the quiet parts out loud. And yet the the polling doesn't indicate that the fear is breaking through. So what do you do? I don't know if you meet them. I meet them. I meet regular people who say Donald Trump didn't really break anything. He, he just talks a big game. What do you do to tell these people he's going to break it? Look, we continue to do exactly what we've laid out today. We continue to say that we're going to take this case uh, directly to voters. Uh, we continue to put ourselves in the position uh, to remind them, look, for the past four years, uh, as Donald Trump has been out of the spotlight, uh, American voters have been focused on the things that really matter. Uh, kitchen table issues, the economy, where Joe Biden has created 14 million jobs, drove inflation down, drove costs down, uh, the cost of living, where Joe Biden's created jobs. So, you know, look, voters have been paying attention to that. But we do need to remind them that just because Donald Trump has not been in front of the 
camera for the past two and a half years does not mean that Donald Trump is not a threat. This is the front runner on the Republican Party and the others um, in their camp don't believe that slavery was the cause of the Civil War uh, and that African-Americans got, you know, workforce development training from slavery. And the list goes on and on. They are a danger uh, to everything that we have built and the fact that we've clawed back uh, from the brink of destruction that Donald Trump left us in after COVID and his presidency, where he gutted uh, so social service programs that millions of Americans depend on. Those are threats to democracy. These are tangible things that Donald Trump has done. I remember what it was like to go into an airport during Donald Trump's Muslim ban, the rhetoric that he was using then. And it's the same type of rhetoric that he's using now. And so the threat is just as much real and vibrant today uh, as it was four years ago. And we're going to make that case and we're going to make it every single day from now until the end of Election Day. 2020 had an interesting coalition of people from across the spectrum politically, um, including progressives and young people. How worried are you? And, and let's just pretend we're not on TV here. Just give me a, an honest answer about it. How worried are you about the, the loss of some of these progressives or groups um, who are feeling that this administration is not sort of uh, putting itself forward on, on certain of the issues that they care about, whether it's climate uh, or, or, or whether it's uh, the, the Israel-Hamas war, which continues to affect people in the administration who feel that the, the administration is not taking a nuanced enough view on this? Well, look, you know, first of all, you know, these voters that you mentioned, the coalition that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris put together, that has been the largest coalition of voters uh, in presidential history. They have the most at stake, young voters, voters of colors, minorities. Um, and so we have to make the case. Look, we're under no illusions. This is going to be a close election. Uh, but when it comes to the issues and the accomplishments, Joe Biden has the largest investment uh, in climate history, right? Um, he's done, you know, marvelous work on the economy. When it comes to the Israel-Hamas situation, he's approached it uh, as commander in chief which is in stark contrast to how the Republicans or any Republican alternative uh, would approach it. Uh, but look, we have to double down and we have to do the work. We have to commit. I think that these voters know exactly uh, what's at stake. Um, when we talk about, you know, you know, going to near Valley Forge to deliver this speech, um, I think it's fitting because it's the place where, you know, our founders brought together a disorganized bunch of, um, you know, colonial militias. Uh, to fight for our democracy. And that's exactly what we're going to have to do with those constituency groups that you just mentioned. We're going to have to bring them all together uh, and double down on this fight for our democracy and hopefully put Donald Trump and the Republican Party and the MAGA agenda behind us. You're um, totally right. You're totally right that some of these folks who are dissatisfied with the Biden administration uh, do have the most to lose and, and in fact, uh, would not necessarily be served by a Trump administration, particularly people who are frustrated about this administration's handling of, of Israel Hamas. Uh, I'm not sure how they think it would be better under a Trump administration, but it's a real issue. So you're telling me you got to go out and you got to talk to these people. But what will you actually say if somebody says to you, 23,000 people are dead in Gaza, funded by American weaponry and given with American support? Some people are calling it something that looks like a genocide. What's the actual answer? What do you say to them? Look, you know, what I would say is that, you know, Joe Biden wakes up every day thinking about the safety of America um, and that Joe Biden has approached this issue not as a political one, uh, but from the perspective of commander in chief uh, from the outset uh, of this situation um, and, you know, has stayed steady. Uh, and has held a steady hand in foreign policy, something that very little of the Republican parties know about. Um, and he approaches this. The other thing that the president does and routinely tells us um, is that we have to continue to engage with people, even when they disagree with us on policy matters. I um, mean, that's what our campaign is going to do. But I want to be explicitly clear about this, that at the end of the day, this election is a choice 
between somebody who has had four years to show us what they would do and has ripped away rights and freedoms, put us in a position where they're bragging about the rights and freedoms, women's uh, right to choose and decide for their own body, or Joe Biden and Kamala Harris who wake up every day thinking about how they can put America first, how they can create more jobs, how they can drive down costs uh, and make lives for people in America uh, a little bit easier. Uh, and we have to do that. We have to continue to build towards that progress. And so that's the case that I would make is that, you know, when it comes to Israel Hamas, it's not a political one. Uh, it's one about the safety of America, uh, the safety of the world on a global standing. Um, and, you know, that's simply it. And we would put that up against anything that the Republicans are doing. And Joe Biden and Kamala Harris's record from the economy here uh, uh, domestically uh, and foreign policy related uh, with everything that's going on. Now is not a time uh, to put someone back in office who had four years and fell asleep on the wheel uh, and made a mockery of America on a global stage or any of the other Republicans who are running who don't understand where half of these places are in the world. So, look, at the end of the day, we're very confident about what this president and this administration have done for the American people. Uh, and when it comes to foreign policy, there's no difference. Quentin, folks, good to talk to you tonight. Thank you for being with us. The principal deputy campaign manager for Joe Biden's reelection campaign. Appreciate your time tonight. All right, well, one more story for you tonight. Republican presidential hopefuls not named Donald Trump. Barnstorm to the Hawkeye State today. Their message to voters less than two weeks out from the Iowa caucuses. We'll tell you next. With less than two weeks to go until the Iowa caucuses, the Republican presidential candidates trailing Donald Trump are in the Hawkeye State trying to woo voters. In Nikki Haley's case, she's also trying to clean up her words after failing to mention slavery in a response to a question about the cause of the Civil War at a campaign stop in New Hampshire last week. This was Nikki Haley today. Without question, slavery was a part of the Civil War. It goes without saying in South Carolina. We know it. We hear about it in school. We hear about it in where we live. It's just a deep part of South Carolina. We know that. I should have said slavery right off the bat. I took that as a given. Hmm. Okay. Nikki Haley's home state was the birthplace of the secession that sparked the nation's civil war over slavery. So her false framing of that part of history is especially confusing. It also doesn't square with her actions when she was the governor of that state to remove the Confederate battle flag from the state capitol grounds after the deadly 2015 mass shooting at Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston. Nikki Haley made that decision a brave decision after learning of gunman Dylan Roof's fixation with that racist emblem. Meanwhile, another Republican presidential contender, Vivek Ramaswamy, he claimed today while denying the existence of white supremacy that he has no clue who Dylan Roof is. This myth of white supremacy, the closest you can find is Jussie Smollett. Mr. Ramaswamy, how can you seriously cite Jesse Smollett when talking about white supremacy when people like Dylan Roof exist? I don't know who that is. So Vivek Ramaswamy and Nikki Haley have to have a little sit down about uh, racism and white supremacy. Republican presidential candidates quibbling over the cause of the Civil War and showing little awareness of one of the deadliest racist massacres in the United States is jarring, especially as the need grows for this nation to have more nuanced conversations about race and about equality. Unless you think that Vivek Ramaswamy's embrace of right wing talking points is an aberration, just listen to what he thinks about his latest endorsement. And you know what? They hit me for it yesterday. But you know what? I'm going to tell you, I'm proud of it that I got Steve King's endorsement in this race. Somebody who's actually a patriot. 
yeah, that Steve King, the former Iowa congressman who once baselessly claimed that immigrants had, quote, calves the size of cantaloupes from smuggling drugs into this country, whose white nationalist rhetoric became so toxic that his House Republican colleagues stripped him of all his committee assignments. Elsewhere in Iowa, Ron DeSantis, the first candidate to glad hand his way through all 99 counties in that state, found himself in an awkward face off with a voter who thought he was too soft on Trump. Can I be honest with you? Sure. Okay, so uh, I think a lot of us voted for Trump. And I have a couple of questions. For one, why haven't you gone directly after him? Polls are down. He's, you know, up really. What do you mean by going directly after? I mean, you're, you're uh, in, in my viewpoint, uh, you're going through a soft water. But what, 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 but what do you think? So, you know, because we, I've articulated all the differences time and time again on the campaign trail. I know. I just, I think that there's just a narrative that, I think the narrative is this. I think what the media wants is, is they want Republican candidates to just kind of like smear him personally and kind of do that. That's just not how I roll. Ron DeSantis would rather talk over an Iowa voter this close to the caucuses than have to speak out forcefully against Donald Trump. But hey, it's about two weeks away. I guess he has some time to find some words. That's our show for tonight. At KPMG, our people make the difference. It's not just something we say, it's what we do. Combining the power of people and technology, we uncover brighter insights, innovate bolder solutions, and create better data-driven outcomes. KPMG, make the difference.